Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart to discuss drug decriminalization and housing affordability. Before his mayoral run in 2018, Kennedy served as an NDP MP in our House of Commons starting in 2011, so we actually overlapped and were colleagues for a few years as well. Now, I asked Kennedy to join me because decriminalization is near and dear to my heart, and Vancouver is the first city under his leadership to request a formal federal exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which means it is seeking to decriminalize all drugs for personal possession. And we recorded this about a month ago, and I had hoped to post this episode with good news of federal approval, but we are still waiting on Health Canada. All indications from the minister's office do appear positive, so I hope it happens soon. And as we discuss, it will also hopefully help lead to further evidence-based drug reform, both by the province of BC and ultimately by the federal government. In addition to drug policy, it is impossible not to address housing affordability issues with the mayor of Vancouver, especially when a likely federal election is ahead of us and there's an active conversation and opportunity for policy development to tackle the issue. I'd said at the tail end of our last episode that I'd be taking a bit of a hiatus. That did happen. It's been about a month since our last episode, and there will be another hiatus of sorts if and when an election is called. But in the meantime, we'll be posting a series of conversations this week, including with Minister Karina Gould, with lawyer and advocate Cindy Blackstock, and starting here, of course, with Kennedy Stewart. Kennedy, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, great to be here. Nice to see you. Good to see you as well. Yeah, it's it's been interesting to see your career from afar, having seen you regularly in the House of Commons and now to yeah. see really your name in the news as you as you make headlines, including on decriminalization. Yeah, especially with COVID. I mean, I can't wait. It'll be nice. We can, uh, you know, we can see each other in person. I'm very interested in the work that you are doing towards decriminalization in Vancouver. And in your mayoral run, you promised a task force and then you did create the Mayor's Overdose Emergency Task Force. They made recommendations Explain a little bit about how you arrived at this conversation, how City Council arrived at this conversation, and where the conversation is currently at in Vancouver. So when I decided to leave my parliamentary career and, and stand for uh, mayor of Vancouver, uh, Gregory Robertson, who served for 10 years as mayor, I decided not to run again. So there was a window there, and I uh, had studied cities my whole life. You know, my PhD from the London School of Economics is on world cities. I actually worked at the city of Vancouver, so I thought that was a, a good fit for me. And really the top issue on everybody's mind is essentially housing. You know, I, I can't afford a home, I can't afford my rent, or I'm living on the street. But the other issue that quickly emerged was overdoses. We've had a state of emergency here, a health emergency for five years in the city where one person dies a day in Vancouver due to overdoses. Uh, this is a poison drug supply. All drugs in the street are poisoned with fentanyl. And even the fentanyl you get is highly unregulated. So it's it's just very, very destructive. But I didn't really have my head around that as much. So uh, Libby Davies, who's also a former colleague in the House of Commons, she's one of my key advisors. And, and she suggested that we have a very quick task force that brings in drug users, uh, folks that are helping them, peers, medical community, police. And we, we take a look at this really quickly. And that's what we did. And, and we had a number of recommendations that were unanimously supported by what has been a fairly divided council on a number of issues. And then we got right to work. The first thing we could do at the city uh, with suggestions coming out of this task force was to invest in peer support. So we added an extra half percentage of property tax in order to pay that. And 
our response to the uh, overdose crisis in general is tens of millions of dollars per year. That's what it's costing us and we're still losing. So it's, it's not enough. We moved also to safe supply, which is substituting illicit poison drugs with uh, prescribed effective alternatives. That That's kind of the key is that they're effective. And, and third is uh, decriminalization. So that's how we, we arrived at that. And then it's like, okay, how do you decriminalize drugs in your city was the next question. So that, that's how we got at uh, those policy approaches. And on the latter question of decriminalization, there's been an ongoing dialogue with Health Canada. Vancouver does now have a formal submission into Health Canada. What has that dialogue been like? Has Health Canada responded quickly and effectively in in your view? And how do you see the process unfolding from here? I've really relied on my experience in Ottawa the seven years that I spent, you know, four years heckling Harper and four years heckling you guys. So, or three years (laughs) heckling you guys. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I was never an overtly partisan New Democrat. And so that helped with relationships. So I was in... uh, Ottawa pre-COVID, just when the new cabinet was sworn in, uh, when Patty Haydu became uh, the Minister of, of Health, and I ran into her in the hallway, and I said, because I was, we were both doing an interview or something, and I said to her, would you be open to talking about decriminalizing drugs? And she said yes, which was great, because I think that's probably the first health minister in the history of the country that would would say yes after initial uh, conversation. So I've had absolute support from the minister right from the beginning. And then it's how do we do that? So we we kind of talked informally. And then there was a path that was found, which is to provide a, a health exemption to um, the Controlled Substances Act. And then I asked council if they were interested in applying for this. I had more another unanimous vote, yes. And so we got a team together and put forward our application, which has been now submitted and uh, reviewed and I think weeks away from uh, being approved. And how did that submission come together? I, I went through it as 50 some odd pages and for every substance, there's a delineated amount. I was on a call alongside your former colleague, Don Davies, the Canadian HIV AIDS Legal Network was hosting it. And a number of people spoke, including representatives from other orders of government, but also people with lived experience, an, an individual who's on a federal task force right now looking at alternatives to incarceration. And one of the individuals with lived experience said the amounts are too low and they're not consistent with personal use for this three-day period that is set out. Who was involved in putting this together? And how are those amounts arrived at and the process arrived at, I guess, to say this is going to be our model of decriminalization? I guess I had in my mind when this thing eventually came to the cabinet table, what needed to be in the package in order for it to get the green light. So that's how I've always thought about structuring the submission. So I knew that to do that, we'd have both the health minister and the justice minister and the public safety minister commenting. And so I knew it was essential to have police involved. And luckily, the National Association of Police Chiefs had already signed off on decriminalization of small amounts of drugs in a general sense as well as our chief, uh, Adam Palmer, was a a big advocate for this. So I knew I had to keep them on board, though. It's kind of a two-part application. The first is the general model by which we approach uh, decriminalizing drugs, which is entirely health-based model, health and peer-based, I I should say. So in places like Portugal, where you often hear referenced in this conversation, the approach there is not a purely health-based approach. There There is still punitive actions. You're ticketed and things like that. Also in Oregon, where they've just decided to go ahead with this, there's not criminality attached to things, but there's still sanctions. So it was decided here we would not have sanctions at all attached to any of this. It would be uh, healthcare providers as well as peers that would be the core of the model. How that was arrived at 
The province's response to the overdose uh, crisis here has been twofold. One is to provide heaps of naloxone so you can revive people once they've overdosed. The second is to, I think, which has been very valuable, is to provide funding to bring together kind of a, a permanent community group of users and, and healthcare providers and peers uh, called community action teams. So I had regularly sat in on these community action team meetings that can range anywhere from 20 to 50 people directly from the community talking uh, about all issues related to this horrible crisis. And so that's where we started. Really, that was our main area of consultation. I also knew in the spring that uh, there may be a federal election at any time. And so I was very conscious of the deadline. I knew that it, once the election cycle was entered into, there was no chance of getting this signed. So I uh, established some pretty firm deadlines. You know, when you call closure on debate in the House of Commons, it, it, it limits the the amount of input you can have. And, and that was a conscious choice to give it the best chance of succeeding. So, so I think everybody agrees on the general health model, like so that how we approach this generally the, the paradigm is agreed on by all. The thresholds were different. And so we actually, because in the Act, the Controlled Substances Act, all drugs are listed. There's like 2,000 drugs that are listed as criminalized. We had to really list uh, which ones we would like decriminalized and what would be the threshold amount to guide the police in their work. So if you didn't set thresholds and you just decriminalized heroin, well, then what do you do with traffickers and, and stuff like that? So there had to be thresholds. And so this is where we used all the best data available, uh, research from UBC, conversations with other groups. Uh, the peer groups also submitted a survey that they did with the help of researchers from UBC. And police data was also very important because it showed what kind of drugs they seized, what were the most prevalent ones in, in use in Vancouver. And so all of that data together, we initially had a range of thresholds and then eventually we settled on a, on a particular threshold under which would be decriminalized. So the key to this is that it reduces stigma, which is often talked about, but what came clear to me through this whole, probably the most valuable thing will happen is it will stop seizures by police. And I think there's probably recorded seizures and there's unrecorded seizures, like people dump their drugs and that type of stuff. So that should, again, provide some stability and, and most importantly, will get people into the healthcare stream. There's an important aspect of this conversation where the criminal law at the moment is the largest stigma for people who use drugs in our society. And Health Canada has this campaign to say we need to destigmatize people who use drugs. And yet we have this law in the books that is the largest problem in the conversation. In Vancouver, you mentioned Chief Adam Palmer, but there's been de facto decriminalization for quite some time as it relates to criminal records but not as it relates to seizure of substances. That emerged through the conversations. We had something like six possession charges laid last year or something. On the surface, it seems small, but then you look at the seizures, which are in the hundreds, and then you think about the folks who are dumping their drugs before their, their drugs are seized is, is thousands, I'm sure. So it is the destigmatization that's important. I mean, that if you find yourself addicted to drugs and it's criminalized and you live in a fairly conservative family, it's going to be very difficult to have that conversation and then get the support you need and then access to healthcare. I mean, how do you bring this up with your doctor, those types of things? And then drugs won't be seized, which brings a bit more stability to a person's life. So those are really the two main benefits of this. And from where I sit, it also elevates the conversation 
around decriminalization, around treating drug use as a health issue to say this ought to be the norm and the sky is not going to fall. Because at the federal level, as you know, you may have seen me calling for this for quite some time and pushing my party. And going back to even the 2018, we had a liberal convention and it, you know, it was a resolution I put through our caucus. And then it came to the convention floor. It was in the top five. And, and yet, you know, you mentioned health ministers, but the prime minister and the then health minister certainly quickly poured water on the idea. Over time, though, I've got a, a bill, a private member's bill that really pushed diversion and evidence-based health principles in the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. That's now government legislation, not decriminalization yeah. yet. But in your work and in, in the city council's work in Vancouver, hopefully knock on work in Montreal and in Toronto, we're going to continue to see this education and this conversation such that the conversation can be elevated, hopefully BC provincially writ large, and then hopefully federally writ large. It takes pushing at all levels, but the big difference between Ottawa sometimes and city politics is I found Ottawa to be a bit theoretical, right? But it's like, how does this actually hit the ground is, is what cities look at. So I actually think it's probably good if Vancouver is used as a bit of a pilot. The, the, the bonuses are, I mean, we've been doing this kind of work for a very long time. So you think of the supervised consumption sites that came in in the early 2000s. I mean, that that was a real debate here cost a couple mayors their jobs. But in the end, it turned out to be a model that was used all over the place now, which is great. So I, I think the, the public here is very supportive. I mean, I, I poll every quarter and at the top two issues, you know, COVID is replaced. It's always a top issue uh, that's fading. Uh, housing and, the, and then the last is, is overdoses. Like that is a consistently very prevalent in people's minds because when you've lost, you know, well over a thousand people and you've had tens of thousands of overdoses, it affects everybody. One. Like I, I've lost a family member. I have another family member that has overdosed multiple times. It is hard to run into somebody in Vancouver who has not been personally affected by this. And the solution seems so commonsensical that it's like, why aren't we doing more? And, and so I, I think it's a great place to do it. And, and the public's ready here, like not more than ready. They're demanding change. <laughs> so so that kind of makes my path quite clear. I think the public is increasingly ahead of this in comparison to politicians. So it's nice to see some politicians that are ahead of this as well. When it comes to the more that we need to do, decriminalization seems to me in some ways to be the bare minimum. Okay, let's destigmatize people that need help. Let's treat drug use as a problematic substance use as a health issue. Those who don't have substance use issues, let's leave them alone and let's use the judicial and police resources to go after real public wrongs. When it comes to the more that needs to be done beyond decriminalization, you've mentioned safer supply. And when you, when you think of the, the sheer scale of deaths that we've seen opioid related and, and overdose related, you know, before COVID, StatsCan said that life expectancy in Canada had stalled and they pointed to the opioid crisis as, as an explanation. There's been safe supply pilots and, and credit, I want to say, to cities like yours, but also to Health Canada for providing funding and rolling out those pilots. But when you look at the scale of the crisis, safer supply does seem to be something that we need to roll out much more quickly and expansively to save lives. You're absolutely right. So I, I think of uh, think of 10 of your friends and if they're all uh, drug users under the current conditions without any support in this illegal, uh, you know, drugs where drugs are illegal, 10 of them have, they could die from fentanyl essentially. So if we bring in decriminalization, that might save two people out of those 10. Uh, if we bring in safer supply, that that might save another six or seven more. Uh, but I think the future pivot is to more peer support 
And, and that is where we're also investing here in the cities. So for example, people say, well, what's next for Vancouver? Well, I'll push on safe supply, safer supply. We, we don't have a ton we can do here other than kind of license and uh, permit uh, facilities that are used by uh, healthcare providers. But the peer interaction is is so important. And what we're talking about next is a compassion club where you could bulk buy drugs that are needed for whatever y- your need is. They would be screened and cleaned and made sure that they're pure and then and then they could be distributed by peers. Now that is a big step for a lot of folks to imagine because essentially it's state sanctioned distribution of drugs. But I do think that we, we find uh, in our overdose prevention sites here are well known inside which is our consumption site, it's 80% uh, healthcare workers and 20% peers in that facility. But an overdose prevention site, it's 80% peers and 20% healthcare. Both are extremely valuable, but the overdose prevention sites are for those who are need extremely low barriers to enter because their their friends will help them get into this. They'll they'll feel supported and familiar surroundings. And I think what we're learning is that the peer support administered are the only thing that works for certain segments of this population. So so that's the next uh, after we get the health minister's signature on the decrim and we start rolling that out. We'll immediately flip now to to a deeper embedding of peer support into this work. And I think most of the doctors here that work on this would agree that this needs to move out of the kind of formalized health system as much as it can and, and move more into a less clinical setting. Although, you know, the doctors here and everybody are great. It's just that that's what we're hearing from peers. Well, it makes sense because you want, in the end, to ensure that people are not seeking out poison substances from the black market. And in order to get to that place, for a number of people, you can have your safe consumption sites be a distribution center potentially. But many people are, are not going to go to that facility to consume substances. And so peer networks and less clinical settings make a good deal of sense if the focus is on protecting people against a toxic drug supply. Yeah, exactly. You know, really the discussions we're having are the kind of minimums. And and you think about the cost of not acting. So the recent estimate I've heard is there's about 7,000 injecting drug users in the city, which is a lot, but there's, there's a lot of folks that are taking substances using different forms. We included a question on our recent homelessness count about people having uh, permanent brain damage from being revived from overdoses. This is a, a real cost to, of course, the folks that are going through this, but also first responders and the community at large. So I'll ask you to put your mind out of municipal politics and into federal politics again for a moment, because we may have an election at some point is the speculation sometime soon. And one reason that I like the idea of an election is it helps to frame certain conversations around policy. It forces the conversation around platform development. And it's possible to then to take some issues that we've made progress on but to really then to say, let's explain the progress you've made and then let's commit to building on that progress. And so as I turn my mind to this issue, in general terms, it seems to me that you'd wanna see a federal government going forward commit to, we have Bill C-22 and we can say we've expanded safe consumption sites across this country. We've increased investment in addressing the opioid crisis through a public health approach, expanded safe supply pilots, et cetera. And then to build on that progress, if we committed to update the Canadian Drugs and Substances Strategy to treat problematic substance use as a health issue, to expand treatment options, which is one element we haven't delved into just yet. And then third, to protect people against a toxic drug supply. Even if we said in general terms, those were our objectives. And then we said, and in meeting those objectives, we will depend upon the advice of public health experts, police chiefs, and people with lived experience. Do you think that would get us to a positive place? Or do you think we should be more prescriptive in solutions? 
You know, I think the Vancouver experiment, you know, or this model that we're working on now, if approved, which I really hope it is, then it actually kind of shows us what probably the most experienced uh, drug using community in Canada, how it reacts to these rule changes. And I think it's a great thing to learn from. I, I will say too, we actually have support from uh, the three host nations here, First Nations, which is very important and, and it took some discussion, as well as an umbrella organization that represents the urban Indigenous people. I think the next thing to watch is what happens in the province and whether or not this informs the election, I don't know, because there there are many municipalities, you know, there's just under 200 municipalities here. There's numerous First Nations. And, and if you're doing a, a wide change over the entire province, this will, again, show how it could work across the country. I think British Columbia is ready for, generally ready for changes, but there is some education that's required. A lot of communities are in denial about how bad the problem is. Like they kind of go on the abstinence route or, you know, forced treatment and confinement and those types of things. So that kind of educative process has to happen. In terms of the national conversation, though, I really feel like everybody that has a seat in the House has to think, how serious are they about this? And stop saying it if you're not serious about it. I think that, you know, cut the bullshit, really. Like, people are dying. Families are being totally devastated. It's a daily occurrence. We've had a state of health emergency here for five years. It's spreading the cities everywhere, perhaps even worse in rural communities where you have volunteer firefighters showing up to revive their neighbors and then eventually, you know, put them into body bags. Like it's it's not a joke and it's not something to be trifled with. So, you know, I salute your work that you're doing there to, to force this conversation. But it, at some point, it'll get to where legalizing cannabis was. It'll take some bold action and leadership. Uh, you'll, you'll take some hits for it. And then hopefully it will, it will make a difference. I think safer supply is really will make the big difference. A decriminalization in a way like it, it'll help a bit, but it won't it won't save everybody. No, it's it's one step on the path to safe regulation of drugs according to their respective harms. And that's what will save lives in greater numbers. I spoke to Louise Arbour recently, who initially their conversation, the Global Commission of Drug Policy, they focused on addressing the stigma and the conversation moved much more quickly than they ever expected it to move. And their most recent work has really been emphasizing this notion of safe regulation and strict regulation and that every other substance in every other context we focus on a safe regulatory environment, except when it comes to this moral conversation around drugs. And then we want to impose heavy penalties that are counterproductive and, and that, that hurt the very people we want to help. Yeah. And how can you I mean, if you know, if you're living in the downtown east side and you survive residential schools and you, you, you know, you've had so much trauma and harm and you find yourself living with an addiction. I mean, what good is it to give somebody a ticket? Like it's so ridiculous or, or to permanently have on their record. So they're during street checks and those types of things that they're continually harassed and, and their drugs are seized. And this is not a, a path forward for any community to pursue. So then we got to think, well, if that's off the table, what is it that's going to make this person have a better life? It does mean that folks are just going to have to adjust their thinking or else that person's going to die. And you make a good point about when you move to a conversation around expanding treatment options that you emphasize evidence-based, not abstinence-based, because we should increase funding at the federal level to support provinces and expand treatment options as part of a holistic response to the opioid crisis and to overdose deaths. But you see some provinces that continue to commit to abstinence-based treatment and it won't be money well spent, but certainly it won't save the lives that we need to be saved and, and is incredibly coercive in, in the worst possible way. 
Yeah, it's going to kill people. I mean, it's just, you know, for the few that absence works and those facilities exist, they're in abundance. But, but for those who have to manage addiction, that is where the investment has to go. And whether that management is, you know, a path to reduce consumption or a change substance or providing the substance that they need to kind of lead as normal a life as they can, like that's where that's where the policy focus has to be. Although it's very, very hard for people to digest that. So, you know, here in the city, we're, we're known as a down city, you know, where heroin has really been the drug of choice for a very long time. It's also poison that people have really switched to fentanyl now because it's a more predictable drug. So then we have to get our heads around, well, we'll have to be prescribing fentanyl in order to, to people that are addicted to fentanyl to keep them stable and well, and then to try to get them to a more stable living condition where they can address the trauma and, and that got them to be addicted in the first place. And when you look at substitution of substances, potentially for some, I spoke to John Conroy, who I have a great respect for. He, he fought many years in the trenches to legalize cannabis. And he was focused on high concentrate cannabis as part of sort of compassion club setting, but as a way of providing substitution for opioids is when you look at your peer supports and you look at the compassion club setting that you might turn to post hopefully health Canada approval of, of the decrim proposal from Vancouver. Have you turned your mind to potential substitution effect and how that may play a role? Yeah. I mean, I think there should be a range of choices for people and, and, you know, people are, are wired to survive. <laughs> so they're going to make the best choice, but they have to get good advice and then to be able to try things and switch if it doesn't work. And, you know, just like any other medication, essentially, but then once they find what works for them, then that has to be provided in a way that, I mean, the less it costs somebody, the less crime you're going to have too. So there is a larger potential impact here for the broader community, not just the moral one, but also, you know, a, a reduced cost. There is a large conversation, for example, around detasking police. So essentially that's what decriminalization is. It's of drugs. It's, it's detasking police from interacting with this community and turning it over to healthcare providers and peers uh, exclusively. That's a great way forward. Policing is 20% of my budget. It would be nice if we spent less and we could put that into other services. But I don't think under the current structure of the law, you can do that because police have to pull the law, right? So. Now you have a particular police force that is very sympathetic already to decriminalization that, as I say, de facto decriminalization for many years. Adam Palmer's leadership via the Chiefs of Police Association helped to formulate that statement. I've spoken to Brian Larkin, who's now the president of that association, and he's very supportive of continuing Adam Palmer's work and following the evidence and discussing the Portugal model, et cetera. I suppose it's fair to say, I feel this as a political representative too, that police chiefs, their voices help the broader conversation. But on the ground, when you actually want to implement the policy. It is really about getting the police out of the way. I think the police would agree. I mean, you think if you if you sign up to be uh, an officer, you you want to tackle real bad guys. And I think stopping somebody that's obviously got a, a an intense uh, health condition, and then having to search them and ticket them or or put them into the you know, like you know that it's not doing any good. It's got to be quite demoralizing. You know, you would rather give that person the card and say, call this number and get into the the healthcare stream or, you know, range transportation or whatever, like that, that's a much better approach. And I think you'd have a big sigh of relief by officers who are really, this is part of their daily routine, which is, I'm sure, very hard to go home at night and say, this job is rewarding. 
it was police officers that actually brought me to this issue in many ways. There was an organization, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, that I ended up following for whatever reason when I was an undergrad at Queens. And I actually even brought one of them up from New York to speak on campus, uh, Peter Christ. And their argument fundamentally was we are former law enforcement officers, we're former prosecutors, former judges, and we have spent our lives in the so-called war on drugs. And not only did we not win the war on drugs, but every time we took down one dealer, we just saw another dealer come to the fore because of the economic incentive, but worse, violence often ensued. So we actually only made it worse. And we're going to spend the rest of our lives to reform these laws that we spent our lives enforcing in a really failed way. And I've, I just found that so powerful. And I went down the rabbit hole of reading and just I don't think there's any other issue in my life that I grew up thinking one thing. And yeah. then once I turned my mind to the evidence, I felt like I'd been lied to. Yeah. You know, I think government is locked in the policy paths and they can't get off of them. And, and, but then you need leadership to do that. You have to take it and get the, the population that's not on board with you and and then the show results. And I think that so what are the objectives of this? It's to reduce interactions with police. It's to get people into the healthcare system. It's to reduce overdoses. I mean, there are measurable outcomes that you can demonstrate. And so that's part of the decriminalization application is there will be a, 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 an ongoing assessment that will be, I think, critical for other communities to get on board. You mentioned this is the number two issue regularly in the city of Vancouver and housing is the number one issue. If I'm reflecting on the success of federal interventions, I would say the rapid housing initiative is a real success for addressing homelessness and there's a credible path to ending chronic homelessness much faster than i think anyone would have appreciated even five years ago i wonder what you think about that but then if i'm being constructively critical i would say but when we look at housing affordability writ large the federal government isn't the holder of all solutions that this is going to require action at all three levels of government but we haven't seen all levels of government work collectively together to deliver on housing affordability with the requisite ambition to meet the real problem. I mean, I, I sit in Toronto, you sit in Vancouver, and our communities are really struggling as a result of housing prices. When you go dig deeper into the uh, opinions of folks in, in Vancouver about housing is that I can't afford my home to purchase, I can't buy a home, I can't pay my rent too high, or I'm homeless. Like those are the three things people care about. And I have to say, when I started this job, everybody seemed confused about how to deal with this. So what happened is cities started talking directly with federal ministers who are a big city mayor's caucus. Uh, John Tory's there, mayors from Calgary, Edmonton, Montreal, like we're sitting there. And, and we were giving advice on how to restructure the funding to, to help us deliver in the city. And I think the rapid housing initiative that you've alluded to has been just an amazing success. We didn't know when we started negotiating that there would be um, COVID, and then we had so many more people forced out into the streets, and, and it's come along at a great time. So our homeless encampments have disappeared. We've got people in the secure long-term housing. It does go hand-in-hand hand with helping address the overdose crisis, too. And on the ending chronic homelessness piece, I'm glad to see the federal government listen directly to cities to transfer funds directly to municipalities and organizations in need. It was so successful. We saw firsthand round one, it was so successful that many of us called for an expansion for round two. And when those funds run out, if we haven't solved the problem yet, I'm certain there will be a round three on the different question of housing affordability. As you look to the levers that you have at city council, the levers that Horgan holds and that we could potentially 
help coordinate and, and work in partnership at the federal level. Are there measures that you would like to see the federal government deploy? I think one program that's not talked about as much is the loans program. Say we have a piece of city property, we have a nonprofit developer building a six-story building. If they get federal finance, in some cases, they can cut the rents by half, and that's for the life of the building. You know, a lot of people think, oh, it just has to be grants. And I thought that too, until we saw the power of these financing programs, which are just amazing. And it can cut rents even if it isn't on city land. So it's been so successful, the province of BC has come up with their own program. Uh, So I think that in combination with some other city work could actually put a huge dent in our workforce housing uh, deficit. The purchase, though, for middle-income people is (laughs) really tough. I'm thinking back to my federal work when uh, Bill Morneau was finance minister and I uh, moved a motion to investigate the housing situation statistically. And thankfully, in that budget and the subsequent budgets, the feds, have, you guys have invested a ton in us understanding what's going on. A recent report that came out about Toronto and Vancouver is about how there's kind of property hoarding by not foreign buyers, but domestic buyers. And the same thing was happening in New Zealand. And so what they did is they said on your principal house, you you have to put 20% down. But if you're doing an investment property, you have to put 40% down. So I have suggested this kind of informally, federally, but but I think that would have a lot of impacts. You would have to stick a ton of capital into your investment property, you know, double the amount of capital that may push you towards more productive uses of your investments. Because uh, property hoarding doesn't really add anything to our GDP. It just makes housing, the existing housing prices a lot higher and prohibits first-time buyers from getting in. So I think there are some definite federal tools that can be used. But the other thing is here at the city, I think all cities would agree, we're kind of stuck in a 1950s planning system that uh, was based around building uh, single detached homes. We've had a massive change here in, in our city staff bringing in a new team that gets that and trying to cut a lot of the red tape. You know, it's not just sitting around measuring how big people's shutters are on their their house. It's thinking like, how do we densify in a way that works for neighborhoods, creating 15 minute cities? How does that work? And that a lot of it rests on us. And so we're trying to, um, you know, change the way we regulate our housing. But the federal finance is probably the best way the feds can help and changing uh, the requirements for down payments. The feds could also take the models from cities that are more focused on inclusionary zoning and on you know, new ways of doing things and to say to other municipalities, as we finance affordable rental construction within their own communities to say, if you want federal dollars, you need to be taking a planning view that is consistent with best principles and best practices and and to adopt inclusionary zoning principles could be one way we approach it as well. It wouldn't necessarily help in Vancouver if you are already proceeding. Well, we, we do have a program here that we've experimented with that's uh, is pretty radical. You know, say you want to build a six-story uh, rental building on private land, we'll give you, you know, we'll reduce your parking requirements and give you extra density as long as you make 20% of your units affordable for families making between thirty dollars and $80,000 a year, but permanently affordable. Basically, we've locked in vacancy control on these buildings. So for the life of the building, these, these units stay at low rent. And um, a lot of developers said no one can ever pencil this out and make it work. But now we've approved 12 of these buildings. And now if federal finance conditions were attached to something like that, uh, then I think you'd see a lot more. So I think it is the continual conversation between the three levels. Uh, kick in a bit of money to us, let us try some stuff out. You can, it'll be totally transparent. 
we'll tell you what works and what doesn't. Because what's hard for us is we're primarily a property tax base. We can only raise it so much every year or else we'll have our heads on pikes. You know, that's kind of how that goes. So, but capital investment is pretty cheap for, for the feds, especially if it's in a pilot um, kind of capacity. And uh, one great example is uh, the province altered our charter to allow us to, to charge an empty homes tax. So if your unit's empty and you don't have a renter or you know, it basically it's a speculative property. Initially, we were charging 1% to the value of your property. I've increased that to 3%. So you think if you're sitting on a $10 million investment with no renters in it, that pretty soon you're, you're going to want to dump that asset. And that's what's happened. We've had thousands of units come back on either rental or, or for sale. And that has been expanded. I don't know. That's more the demand side, though. Um, the supply side is we need more measures on that side to, to help. But like I said, the, the loans program is really, really helpful for that. Yeah. And on the supply side, we can be there for, for loans and we can be there to work with municipalities to hold up best practices for zoning. And on the demand side, I think you're right. I, I've mentioned the New Zealand work to finance and it's not about putting first-time homebuyers credits in the window it's really about addressing the financialization of not new bills because we want new bills but of the resale housing market that that takes out units away from end users yeah make it a little less attractive to hoard properties for i mean i I, i'm a renter i live in a rented condo this was vancouver's answer for for 15 years build condos as investment properties rent them out to people but it's so unstable you know, it's that the, the owner has all kinds of reasons why they can kick you out. And that's why we moved to secure market buildings like rental only. That'll always be rental. That gives a lot more security. And especially if it's a, a pension fund or something, you know, they want their five or six percent return a year. They're happy with that. They have a good management company. So that's more security. But property ownership is a dream for many, so we can find ways to do that. I have a program I tried to get passed through council last year, but it failed, which would basically take a single detached lot and allow up to six units of housing on that, much smaller units, as long as up to two of them were forever protected from speculation with covenants. A bridge too far for uh, <laughs> eight, uh, eight councillors so I, I, out of 11 of us, so I didn't get it there. I'm going to take another shot at it. This is a pilot uh, project. Uh, it's been tried in other places. But if you think then you could have your single detached house, you could put six units in place of it, two of them would be covenant protected, meaning that you sell them for a lower level and then you buy them for a lower level, you sell them for a lower level than, than market. And then, you know, people can get in and get equity, first time owners, young folks, immigrant families. And so I, I pitched, we try a hundred of these. We have tens of thousands of lots here in the city. Uh, but I'm hoping maybe this year we get another crack at it and um, folks will sign off on a pilot. But that that could have finance, right? There, there could be specialized finance for those programs. We got to try everything, right? It's just not uh, it's not working and everybody in the world knows it. And we want people in cities and not stressed out about housing. Like it's just it wrecks your city if everybody's stressed all the time. And every conversation so damn boring when it's about how high your rent is or your mortgage or be nice if it was about like what book you read or (laughs) what gig are you going to go see, right? That's uh, that's what we want. It's nice to speak to an elected official who is also a policy wonk. And I remember when you were in Ottawa, you'd put forward a bill that was obvious in its objective and worthy in its objective, but was quite complex and and I think quite smart in the way it was designed to ensure greater participation of women in politics and that parties would receive a certain amount of contributions back only if they 
fielded a certain number of women and pushing towards a 50% figure. And it, it was a, a, the work of a policy wonk, I could tell right away. <laughs> when you look at your work over eight years in Ottawa and you look at your work now, I know Vancouver is still party based, but do you yeah. miss the more partisan politics of Ottawa? Do you no, do you miss no. the work in Ottawa? And would you ever I, want to come I back? Do sometimes. Yeah, I do miss, you know, in city politics, it's it's sleeves rolled up and and sometimes world events go by you and you don't have time to reflect on it. I did. I did find in Ottawa, there was the larger you had time for especially during question period where you're just sitting there listening to ridiculous questions and answers you know, <laughs> just to think about. I'm yeah, sure you don't miss question period, though. <laughs> I I did emails all the way, made sure I was off camera, <laughs> did emails all the way through. Don't tell the whip. But yeah, I, I do miss the kind of the potential there is is enormous, right? And I think credit to your government in, in the, you have grasped potential and, and carried the country forward in a lot of ways. And then there's a lot of ways that, you know, there could be more done. And so minority situation is pretty good from an NDPers perspective. Like I, I like the work Jug Meat's uh, done there. And I like, I really like the guy myself. He's a really good fella. And um, you know what I miss is sitting in the House of Commons. I was always on the opposition benches watching the uh, stained glass windows uh, in the afternoon with the light shining through. I still I'd always nudge my seatmate and say, don't forget this. This is this is pretty awesome. But uh, I I, uh, I just a privilege to serve in both places, really. And um, I was saying to my wife this morning, like, you know, whatever happens, what's happened through COVID, the bad stuff has shown how we can come together as a country. But the work that citizens don't know about that's been happening behind the scenes on housing, on drugs is is quite remarkable. And I think we had opportunities that we wouldn't have had unless COVID came. So I think we've taken good advantage of those, you know, lemons and the lemonade a little bit anyway. So, uh, yeah, I, I do think it's it is nice to talk about international and national issues. You know, talking about I don't know dog parks is a, sometimes a little dull, but you do you do immediately see what what you're accomplishing. You know, the shovels go in the ground and people move into their homes. Like that's that's pretty cool. And you're able to, in some cases, bring the two worlds together and force yep. a larger national conversation around decriminalization based on municipal work. So uh, keep keep at it, and I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much, uh, and thanks for doing this. Thanks for joining me on this episode. Both of these issues matter a great deal to me and to my constituency in Beaches East York, so it's good to see the work going on in Vancouver, and I hope similar work will be pursued in other cities and that the federal government takes a stronger leadership role around treating drug use as a health issue. We've managed a lot of progress since 2015, certainly. I can point to hundreds of millions of dollars to address the opioid crisis through a public health approach, including expanding treatment options. I can point to the restoration of harm reduction as a central pillar of our drug strategy, dozens of safe consumption sites, the approval of pilot projects for safer supply, Bill C-22, which will move us in a really positive direction. But we aren't yet in a place where we're meeting the evidence head on. And when the evidence is overwhelming, we need to listen to our public health experts to save lives. With that, please do leave a positive review if you like what we're doing. And otherwise, until next time.